Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love, and right now is no exception. We've heard you listeners and know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times. So that's what we intend to do. Today, we're reviewing the lemon sour cream pie from Taste Better from Scratch and introducing a donut loaf from Shauna Seaver's popular Midwest-made cookbook. Finally, in our ongoing series on homemade ingredients, we'll talk you through making your own yogurt. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet and sour talk. Andrea, we had a post in the Facebook listeners group last month from listener Nancy Pants. Nancy Pants. <laughs> Nancy Pants. Is it like fancy pants? I love it. I don't know. I, who knows? Nancy, let us know. <laughs> listener Nancy Pants, she had a post about having a huge quantity of both sour cream and heavy cream, and she was sending out an SOS, how do I use this up before it goes bad? She got a ton of great listener suggestions. But I also put a comment there and said, you can freeze both of those things. And it led me to think about all of the other things dairy-related that you can freeze that people might not realize. Oh, okay. I can't wait to hear about this because I just the other day asked my husband if we could freeze milk, and we had a Mm -hmm. long discussion. We each had very strong opinions, but we didn't ever look up the answer. So we're just both holding firmly in our opinions. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, let me start with that one then. Okay. Okay. So North Dakota State University has an excellent resource, and I will link to it in the show notes for this episode. This is episode 173. Milk, Andrea, yes, milk can safely be frozen for about two months. What you want to do is open the container and pour a little bit out because as anything freezes, it expands, and you don't want it to expand and then Mm. crack your container. But yeah, pour a little bit out, and then you're good to go. You can also freeze sour cream yogurt, cream cheese, buttermilk. Now, all cultured dairy, so that includes all of those I just mentioned, it will lose a little bit of its creaminess Mm. somewhat during the freezing process. But if you're going to add it to a baked good, you know, you're not just eating it as is, Mm -hmm. it's going to be fine. Cottage cheese will freeze. Whipping cream, heavy cream, that was one of Nancy's requests. It will not whip to the same volume as fresh, but again, use it in a recipe or just know you're not going to get those beautiful billowing peaks. It will freeze fine as well. Hey, you know we've been, You know we've been freezing butter forever. Well, I have been since you told me I could. <laughs> yeah, that may have been like my number one tip to you back in episode one. <laughs> yeah, if by forever you mean since the start of our show. Yes, mm-hmm, I do, <laughs> when time began. But Andrea, another important thing to be able to freeze is eggs. And eggs take a little bit more prep, but they can be frozen. Mm. You remove them from your shell, and you can put them through a sieve into a cup measure. Then add about a tablespoon of salt per cup of egg, and that helps prevent graininess when it is frozen. And you can also do that just with the white or just with the yolk. Some people freeze them like you freeze your lemon juice in an ice cube tray so it's pre-measured and 
three tablespoons of egg mixture is about equivalent to one egg. So anyway, very helpful resource on the North Dakota State University website. I will post that link. And, you know, definitely now more than ever, I think no one wants to waste ingredients. They're feeling so precious. Yes. If you can't get to something before it's going to go bad, pop it in your freezer. Yeah, such a great idea. And I feel like North Dakota would really understand freezing. So I think that's a great resource. Oh, oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that yeah, aspect of yeah. it. I was thinking just kind of like agriculturally they would understand, <laughs> but also for the weather. They've got it all covered. Totally. Another thing that we're talking about during this quarantine period is quarantine baking. And so I want to remind everyone that we have a resource on our website. It's labeled as quarantine baking right across the top yep. of the page. And a couple of things that we keep getting questions about, and that is recipes that are either free of flour or free of eggs, as it seems yep. that people are having trouble sourcing those ingredients. A quick tip on how to tell if a recipe might be egg-free. And what I mean by a quick tip is just by looking at the title as opposed to having to scroll all the way through the recipe and read all the ingredients very carefully. If yeah. it is labeled as vegan, then it's probably egg-free. If right? it is a no-bake item, then it very often will be egg-free as well. So that's yeah. two good tips when you're looking for the egg-free. And then same thing, if your flour is feeling a bit precious right now and you don't want to use it to look for a flour-free dessert, look for something that's perhaps a custard or an ice cream or a dessert that's assembled from ingredients that are already prepared, like our mm -hmm. Kit Kat cake we made back way back in the episodes. Oh. I think that was episode 76 or 77. Yeah, it's actually the queen's favorite chocolate biscuit cake, right? But you yes. just thought it absolutely tasted like a homemade Kit Kat. I thought so. So mm -hmm. I guess, yeah, I guess that's maybe not the name of it. Um, <laughs> but the key here is to remember that we're not saying that these recipes don't include flour as a, an ingredient. For example, the tiramisu, the lady fingers might have flour mm -hmm. in them. We're just saying you won't have to use your flour if you're finding that to right. be a precious resource. So. Yeah, that's an important distinction. And Andrea, those eggless and flourless recipes, I was absolutely blown away by how many we've done in both categories. So you do not have to fear if you are missing out on those ingredients, if you're, you're feeling that you can't make as many things as you'd like, there are still plenty of things at your disposal there. Yes, yeah, lots of options. Well, up this week was our Bake Along, a lemon sour cream pie from Lauren Allen. Tastes Better From Scratch is her blog, and we have used her before during our Pumpkin Palooza month. I had great success with some of her pumpkin cookies, awarding them a blue ribbon back in that month. Lauren says this is a creamy, dreamy lemon sour cream pie that could be her favorite pie recipe of all time. Wow. High praise indeed, Andrea. <laughs> you and I both huge lemon people. Let's hear it. How did this go for you? Well, let's start out with the crust. We talked last week on episode 172 about the fact that the crust needed to be blind baked because this is a cream pie. And yeah. so you're not going to be baking the cream pie. You have to have the crust already done. I looked in my freezer before I started making my pie crust. And sure mm -hmm. enough, there was a pie crust disc or what... Kate McDermott calls a chubby disc. That's still one of my oh. favorite phrases from Art of oh. the Pie. 
a little chubby disc of pie crust. Now, shame on me. When I put pie crust in the freezer, I'm guessing I should date it and label it so I know mm-hmm. which recipe I used. But it had neither date nor label. But uh, in this time of conserving resources, I said, yes, I'm going to use this. <laughs> Good call. I took it out of the freezer. I let it defrost overnight. Uh, The next day, I rolled it out. I did that trick that we learned with a recent bake. Stefan, what was it where we rolled the pie crust between the two sheets of parchment? Yeah, it was the acorn hand pies. And the crust recipe in that called for that method. Because I think the acorn was especially sticky, but it sounds like it worked here as well. I just love doing that so much. I, For some reason, it feels cleaner to me. I feel like mm-hmm. my crust stays together better. I don't see all of the cracks and things that maybe sometimes might cause me some anxiety. Like, oh my gosh, it's not really rolling out well. So I did that trick again. And then I placed the crust in the pie pan. And then I folded and crimped my edges and I put it in the freezer. And about half an hour later, I remembered that I said I was going to try the method (laughs) from Sally's Baking Addiction. (laughs) Um, to, you know, do a blind bake. And alas, I forgot to do that. It was too late because my crust was already frozen and I had used all of my crust. So I am curious if any listeners tried that method. I really want to know if that works well for the blind bake. She takes strips of crust and so she puts the crust in the pan she folds the Mm -hmm. edges and then she puts these extra strips around the edge because like I said my biggest problem is shrinkage so it makes it higher or just is it hanging off the pie tin I'm trying to picture it higher and thicker and so I feel like it's Mm -hmm. more it's kind of more of an edge that you can grab and maybe it kind of grabs onto the pan I put parchment in over the top of my frozen pie shell and then I baked it with the sugar and I love doing that for my blind bakes you mentioned this last week and it reminded me how much I love doing that and I would say mine turned out okay I certainly would not say it was a beautiful pie crust it had uh, again a bit of shrinkage not as much as I usually experience so I did have some success it was fine It wasn't my prettiest, but it was fine. How about you? How'd your blind bake turn out? I had a great blind bake, Andrea. Yay! Oh, I'm so happy for you. I know it is so, it's so exciting to see it because I'm peering through the oven door Mm -hmm. and I'm so used to it just starting to slide and just collapse and it wasn't doing that and it wasn't doing it. And then there reaches a point where it does become firm enough and you can kind of breathe easy again. Here's what worked for me this time. I too put my dough into the pie tin I made extra high sides and I froze it also for about half an hour I lined the dough with buttered parchment and then I did a mix of pie weights I did my pie chain which kind of looked like a long stainless steel strand of pearls I put two of those and then I put the sugar on top so I felt like it was very heavy and, you know, one thing we really mm-hmm. love about that sugar is it gets into the crevices of the crimping right. really well in a way I don't think that pie weights can do in the same way. So I liked this combo. I baked it till it was set. Then I took everything out and then baked it until it was golden. And it was beautiful. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> okay. Did you by chance take a photo of the pie crust Mm. with the weights and the sugar in them because I'm curious how high your sugar is mounted I did not next time do that for me 
I made a fresh pie crust, Ina Garten's recipe, and it is a shortening and butter combo. And it makes two, so I have one in the freezer now. I have a fat little, what's it called? Chubby little disc. Chubby disc. So perhaps I will blind bake again. And perhaps I will be blind baking this pie again, because I'm with Lauren Allen. This was a great pie. Oh, it was so good. Let's take a look at what we did once we were done with our crust. So you lightly beat your egg yolks with a fork and set those aside. So I separated my eggs and my egg yolks. We discussed last week, both of us, instead of doing the whipped cream topping, we're going to do a meringue topping since we would have those egg whites available. And then on the stove, you combine the sugar and the cornstarch And then you whisk in the milk and the fresh lemon juice and cook it over medium heat until it is thick and bubbling. Mm -hmm. I found this to be just sort of fascinating. I really enjoyed watching it go from being thin. And you know how you go from that moment where you're like, well, it's just never going to thicken to all of a sudden you're just getting those big popping bubbles and it's just nice and thick like pudding. You go, oh, I guess it did work. At that point, you reduce the heat to low. You cook it for two more minutes, and then you temper the egg yolk. So this involves taking a spoonful of that hot custard mixture and putting it into the egg yolks a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So to sort of warm up that egg yolk mixture before you add them to the hot uh, pudding mixture in the saucepan. Yeah, and if you don't do that step, listeners, you just kind of run the risk of scrambling your eggs, and it's not what you're going for. So do take the time. Don't skip it. Of course, you mix that egg mixture into the saucepan, you stir it well, you bring it to a gentle boil, you cook it for another two minutes, take it off the heat, and then you add in your softened butter and your lemon zest. I have to admit here, I had forgotten to take my butter out. So I did use the half a stick of butter or a quarter cup of butter, but I didn't soften it, and I think it worked out just fine because it's going into that warm mixture, and it melted quite nicely. Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. So after your butter and your lemon zest, then you stir that until everything's melted. You allow it to cool a bit, and then you stir in your sour cream. Now, here is where my method departed a bit. Mm. Then you add your filling to the pie shell, and at that point, if you're making the whipped cream topping that is original to this recipe, you would make a heavy whipping cream, uh, add the sugar, stiff peaks, your basic whipped cream, and then when the filling was entirely cool, you would put that over your pie filling and refrigerate about two to three hours. Meringue does best when the filling is hot, uh, and that helps because you don't want it to shrink or what's called weep, and that's when it gets a little bit wet underneath. It's really nothing to do with the flavor. It's more about the aesthetics of the meringue. But here, because I was trying to have the best of both worlds, I did cool it down and just put my meringue on top of the colder filling. Andrea, how did you play that? Yeah, I mean, you're telling me all this about meringue working better on hot, and that makes sense to me, but I didn't know that. Again, I mentioned last week that meringue and lemon pies were always my mom's domain. So yeah, I cooled mine, you know, I think probably, maybe even, I think I cooled my pie overnight. I did. I cooled it overnight. And then the next morning, I whipped up the meringue. So I had the three egg whites, and I used a little, like a scant quarter cup of powdered sugar and whipped those up in my KitchenAid mixer with the whisk attachment until I got those big glossy peaks. And Mm -hmm. then I spread them over the pie filling. 
everything I read about meringue says you always want to make sure you go all the way to the edges to really yes. seal it in. That's right. And then I used a technique that came to me from listener Craig, and his mother always taught him to sort of beat the meringue <laughs> with a spatula. And yeah. so I, you know, again, a little bit of rage baking there. I just sort of um, <laughs> let let it fly with my little spatula, and that gives you all those pretty peaks and things. Yeah. And then I baked it at 350. My recipe, which I pulled out from Mark Bittman's How to Bake Everything, it said 350 degrees for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. I set the timer for 15 minutes. Luckily, I was in the kitchen, and about halfway through at seven minutes, I thought, oh, I'll peek in on it and see how it's doing. And Uh it was done. Okay. So I pulled it in time, but, you know, thank goodness I was there. If I had gone 15 minutes, it definitely would have been burnt. So I'm really happy I pulled it when I did. And I had mine under my broiler just for a very few minutes. My pie dish was not a Pyrex, which we've had lots of chatter Mm -hmm. on the Facebook group about. So I knew it was safe for that. And then it's just, you know, it's very quick, maybe two or three minutes. I just kind of turned it around for even browning. It was gorgeous. Andrea, my notes on this pie just say, this is the kind of pie you want more of immediately. Yes. (laughs) I knew that was the case when I added the filling to the pie shell Mm. and, you know, there was a little bit of the filling left in the bowl. And so, of course, I tasted it and I thought, oh, "Oh my gosh, like I could just eat this, just this lemon custard. I mean, that would be fabulous. So, yeah, this pie was absolutely delicious. To me, I really liked it better than lemon meringue pie, yeah. I think. I like that sour cream. I like that custardy creaminess. I agree. I think the sour cream made it tangy, but it wasn't acidic like some lemon meringue pie yes. fillings can be. It really mm-hmm. smoothed it out. I also love the meringue. It was plenty sweet enough. I didn't feel like I was missing any of the sugar or the creaminess from the whipped topping, although it would be fun to try that sometime. It was beautiful and delicious. And you know, Andrea, it's a pantry staple for me for the most part. I usually have these ingredients on hand. If I'm lucky enough to have a pie crust in my freezer, all the better. So this got the yum yum yummo from me. <laughs> oh, wow. I know. We we know how popular that is. It is. Uh, yeah. Everyone in my family liked this as well. I think this is a lovely sort of summertime pie in my mm. head. It was fun making it sort of mid-spring, you know, heralding spring a little bit. But I, I just also, I don't know, lemons to me. I think lemons in summertime. So I think it would be good all year round. But I especially thought it was nice to do it this time of year. Oh, I agree. It's a beauty. It's a keeper. Let's see how next week's bake is going to turn out. And will it compete with this delicious pie? We are going to be baking a very popular recipe from the cookbook Midwest Made by Shauna Seaver. The recipe was published on The Kitchen. It's actually been published numerous places on the internet, and you'll be able to find it. And it is called the Donut Loaf. (laughs) So, (laughs) Stefan, first of all, I wanted to ask you, part of the reason this recipe jumped out at me is because it was from Midwest Made. Yeah. And back last year in October of 2019, you mentioned that this was one of the cookbooks you were eagerly anticipating. So any chance you got your hands on that cookbook yet, or does it still remain out there on your to-be-read list? Yeah, it still remains out there on my to-do list, but I'm really hopeful that this will be a wonderful entry, and if I love it, then for sure it's going to move up. I mean, when we were talking about recipes for this month and we were going back and forth, and then I think you just sent me an email and you're like, how about this one, donut loaf? And I'm like, I'm in. Like, what else do I have to say? <laughs> 
Yeah, just the title is enough to Uh grab most people. The other reason I grabbed this recipe is that I'm a member of a Facebook group called the Food 52 Baking Club, and they picked Midwest Made, I think, for their February 2020 book. Okay. And the donut loaf was the most baked recipe I've ever seen in that group with the most divided reviews. It appeared that people either loved it or they were like, eh, didn't love it. So I'm really fascinated. I, as you may not know, am not a donut lover. (gasps) And I am a donut lover. Yes. So I thought we would be a perfect test case because if I make it and I don't love it, it could be just because I don't love donuts. Who knows? I love recipes like this. Donut loaf sounds so much healthier than calling it what it essentially is, donut cake. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Call it whatever you need to sleep at night. I mean, let's talk through some of these ingredients. You've got your all-purpose or plain flour, baking powder and soda, some sea salt, two teaspoons of freshly grated nutmeg. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. 14 tablespoons of butter, some granulated sugar, vanilla, three eggs, and our star ingredient of the month, one cup of buttermilk. Then you're going to finish it in true kind of powdered sugar donut fashion with a cup of powdered sugar and some more butter that you melt. I want to come back to the nutmeg for just a minute, Andrea. This donut loaf says it serves 8 to 10, but there's two whole teaspoons of freshly grated nutmeg. Now, anytime I've used freshly grated nutmeg, I find it to be much stronger than just a powdered nutmeg out of a jar. So I might choose that spot to scale back a little bit. Yeah, the nutmeg definitely seemed to be a topic of conversation. A lot of people love it and insist that it is part of what makes this recipe Midwest. Okay. So there, and I am not from the Midwest, so I don't know what's particular about their donuts and nutmeg, but something about that whole powdered sugar donut and the nutmeg combination. A lot of people who grew up in the Midwest were like, yes, this is what mm-hmm. I remember about powdered sugar donuts growing up. Okay. I agree with you. I think two teaspoons of freshly grated is a lot, but I love nutmeg. So me too. I don't know yet what I'm going to do. I just well, don't know. So exciting. Do you remember? I can't remember when this was. We talked about nutmeg toxicity we did (laughs) i was just thinking of that it's a real thing it is and i guess it becomes toxic if you were to eat a half a teaspoon just like down the hatch like in one go how you would do that i don't know accidentally however andrea if i love donut loaf and it serves eight to ten i mean it's an honest to god risk that i would be ingesting half a teaspoon of nutmeg yeah i feel like you'd be safe i'm not worried about your I mean, it would be like blended with other ingredients, but... um, That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking we're going to be safe there, but it's definitely going to be a strong and overwhelming flavor. I mean, I have to be honest, if it was that much, let's say, freshly ground cinnamon Mm -hmm. or a spice that I don't love as much Mm -hmm. as nutmeg, it might give me pause. Actually, two teaspoons of cinnamon in a loaf cake wouldn't throw me off, but if it said two tablespoons, I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's too much. So I definitely get where you're coming from about your nutmeg anxiety there. So go ahead and do it. Again, you're not comparing it. You didn't grow up in the Midwest either, so it's not like you're trying to recreate some childhood memory. But I do, I mean, of all donuts, just a delicious frosted sugar cake donut has got to be my number one favorite. So I do know what they're talking about as far as that nutmeg. I think I'm just going to play it by ear the day that I bake, how that one Mm -hmm. teaspoon is 
smelling, if my nutmeg is particularly yeah. fresh and strong. And yeah, so we'll report back next week on that. Otherwise, the method for this is pretty easy. Uh, you're using a 9 by 5 inch metal loaf pan. Now, she says a light colored. I don't, I think mine's kind of dark. Do you have a light colored one? I do have a light colored one. And this is one of those instructions that because I have the baking utensil I was excited to see it but if I didn't I think I would have been annoyed by this <laughs> I don't have a choice right now so I'm gonna have to go dark right I know what she's saying here is we've talked about in the past you know the kind of pan you're using really does influence your bake time so dark metal does conduct heat yeah. faster so you want to watch the baking time a little more closely so that's what I'll be doing this is sort of a little tangent, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. I made our beloved peasant bread from Alexandra Stafford mm, yes. a couple of days ago. And a lot of times I make it in those one-quart Pyrex bowls. But mm -hmm. this time I doubled the recipe. Not doubled. I one and a half timed yes, the recipe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I baked it in two loaf pans. And one of the loaf pans was my light colored metal loaf pan. Okay. And the other one was a glass Pyrex pan. Yeah. And when I pulled them both out of the oven, I don't know why it didn't occur to me that those would cook differently. So I just yeah. pulled them both out of the oven, turned them over to pop them out of the pan later, went and tried to eat it later. The one that baked in the light-colored metal pan was perfectly mm. done. The okay. one in the Pyrex pan was gummy and still oh. had like a strip of raw dough. It needed more time. Yeah. Yep. Choice of pan does matter. Lesson learned. Just a reminder there. Then you've got your dry ingredients. You're whisking everything together there. Then working with your butter, sugar, and vanilla, adding a little bit of flour to that mix, then beating in your eggs. And then you're going to do your alternating dry ingredients with your buttermilk. Again, very cake-like in that method there. She says the batter will be very thick. You're going to scrape it into your prepared pan and bake until golden with a couple of cracks on top and a toothpick inserted comes out clean. She says about 60 to 75 minutes. That's a pretty big spread there. So also watch your pan. Yeah. Let cool. And then there's a fairly elaborate powdered sugar dusting method there that involves taking the loaf, spreading it with butter and rolling it around in the powdered sugar. And we'll Ooh. see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> That is pretty elaborate. I might just uh, sift some sugar over the top and call it a day. Her method involves balancing the loaf on your forearm, which I don't know that I've ever done <laughs> in the baking world. Perhaps you should start working out. <laughs> well, listeners, remember, we'll have a link to all of these recipes we've talked about today in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 173 on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Andrea, we've got one more how-to dairy segment this month, and though it might be the most complicated, the payoff seems huge. Homemade yogurt. Unlike the sour cream, kefir, buttermilk, or creme fraiche we've already talked about, homemade yogurt requires additional time, a more scrupulous attention to cleanliness, and potentially some additional ingredients and equipment. That's right. Essentially, homemade yogurt is a combo of milk and fermented cultures, warmed and left to incubate for several hours. You can use a prepared yogurt or purchase powdered yogurt culture. The culture converts the milk sugar or the lactose into lactic acid, which is what gives yogurt that trademark tanginess. I have such a 1970s nostalgia for homemade yogurt. <laughs> My mom had an electric yogurt maker, which was this long appliance with four round holes for the yogurt pots. It warmed the pots a little like a slow cooker, I guess, which allowed the ferment to happen. 
I wish I remembered what it tasted like as much as I remember what it looked like because I'm having these serious 1970s mustard yellow appliance flashbacks right now. <laughs> I know I've seen those in the Goodwills and the thrift stores. I know yes. exactly what you're talking about. Yes. You can still purchase electric yogurt makers today and maybe even in mustard yellow if you're so inclined. <laughs> They range in price from very reasonable to very expensive, depending on the brand and the features. But as many of our listeners know, you can also make yogurt in your Instant Pot. Oh, perfect. Have you tried this? Okay, I have, but only once. I used a recipe from a website called This Old Gal, <laughs> and I'll tell you right up front, the flavor was great, but I did not get the texture I wanted. Oh. I like creamy, thick, Greek-style yogurt. Mm -hmm. The steps are pretty simple, although it does take a while. I used a gallon of whole milk, brought it up to 180 degrees in the Instant Pot, added some starter, which is just two tablespoons of regular yogurt, mm -hmm. and then lowered the temperature back down to 95 to 100 degrees. And then you do this eight-hour yogurt cycle, <laughs> which is a button on my Instant Pot, okay. followed by another six to eight hours in the fridge, followed by straining. After all of that, which felt like a lot of time and effort, I ended up with really great tasting, but still runny yogurt, mm. no matter how many times I strained it. So it was a bit disappointing. So it sounds like you may need to give it another run to see if it was that recipe or something else. I mean, you know I don't always follow a recipe perfectly. <laughs> I meant to, but who knows? I could have skipped something. I also read later that organic milk does not always set up correctly, and I mm. always use organic mm, milk. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's it. I don't know. Now, if you don't have an Instant Pot or want to purchase a dedicated yogurt maker, fear not. Many people use a thermos, a slow cooker, or even a bowl wrapped in a hot pad, no joke, for their incubator. We'll link to a comprehensive recipe from Epicurious in the show sheets for this episode, which is episode 173. Stefan, I've had the most success so far with nothing but a pot, a glass jar, and my oven. Wow. Well, tell us more. I'm sure everyone has that on hand. It's the recipe from the cookbook Indian-ish by Priya Krishna. All you need is four cups of milk and half a cup of yogurt. She has this great story in the cookbook about how her father is in charge of making yogurt in their household, and it was his weekly job, and he had this great little routine. So you start off by adding a thin layer of water to your pot, mm -hmm. then you pour in the four cups of milk and just bring it to a boil, then you let it cool down to 130 degrees. This takes about 30 minutes. Then you add the milk to a one-quart glass jar that has a teaspoon of yogurt smeared on the bottom. And then you add the rest of the yogurt, so up to that half a cup. Okay. And then you loosely set the lid on top so a little air can get out. And you place it inside of your unheated oven with the door closed. And you just let it sit until it's done. And how long does that take? It sounds so easy. Yeah, it's not yet done. So the recipe says let it sit for two to five hours in the oven until it's set but still jiggly like jello. And I found that it takes me five hours in the oven and then an overnight rest in the fridge until it's the consistency that I want. Okay. Well, you know, I looked at several sources when I was writing this segment and all of them said the same thing. Once you try homemade yogurt, you will never go back to commercially prepared. My husband definitely agrees with that, and he's the biggest yogurt eater in our house, so I listen to him. <laughs> Listeners, what do you think? Are you a pro at homemade yogurt in an Instant Pot, electric yogurt maker, or another incubator? 
How do you think the taste compares to commercial yogurt, and is it worth the extra time and attention? Send us your comments, questions, and hot tips at host at preheatedpodcast.com or by leaving us a voicemail at 802-276-0788, or you can post in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning, and next week we'll be back with a review of Shauna Seaver's Donut Loaf, and we'll do a preview review of a buttermilk quick bread with an astonishing 10 variations. Then we'll take a deep dive into some of the food history behind some of our favorite tangy dairy ingredients. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones. We hope our show has provided a bit of a respite when you've needed it most. Thanks for listening, be well, and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.